Tonight, we are going to focus on the first three Old Testament covenants. Uh, the, Adamic, the Adamic or Adam covenant. Uh, we're going to focus on the Noahic covenant, which is, which is very short. And then we're going to focus on the Abrahamic covenant. Really, I am going to give you, I changed, um, I changed this presentation from the last couple years because we realized um, it, wasn't, it wasn't really that accessible to RCIA and adult confirmation, especially people that haven't studied the scriptures before or it's been a long time since maybe you read the scriptures. So I really, this summer, I completely changed this whole presentation. I am going to give you an aerial view, probably like a 30,000 view of the, of the covenants. That book that we're giving to you tonight, A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Scott Hahn, it's the, one of the first books I read on the scriptures, and it's what kind of started to get me excited as a Catholic about the scriptures, even though the scriptures are entirely through the, I mean, through the entire mass, all you see are sacred scripture, but really to understand the scriptures and the, and the role the scriptures play in the, in the Catholic church, that was the book that did it for me. And then I was blessed enough to go to Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio, which is this town of like probably, I don't know, 20,000 people on the West Virginia, Ohio border. And um, I went there and actually studied under Dr. Hahn, uh, among other, other great professors. Dr. Hahn was actually one of my, was a professor, and he was actually my, uh, my academic uh, advisor while I was at, um, at Franciscan. So he is a, he was a, he was a very anti-Catholic preacher for a long time and then he had this major conversion which actually split his family because his wife and him weren't Catholic at the same time. He became Catholic and she was still fighting it. So he was very anti-Catholic for a long time and now and he's been Catholic since I think 1987, 88, somewhere around there and then he started teaching at Franciscan. He has written countless books and um, one of the great Catholic theologians here in the United States definitely of our of our time so so this kind of comes from my studies with him as well as just reading uh, other things as well when you read a father who keeps his promises it will fill in a lot of the holes that I'm going to leave for you um, I'm going to give you to you as quickly as I can uh, and kind of go over a couple things in the scripture with you but really take it home and read that book and it's not hard some of the titles are very humorous that he gives so, and I will walk you through that handout that I have for all of you as well. Okay, so salvation history. A good way to see salvation history is by looking at the covenants that God established with his people. There are two terms that we have to kind of learn about. One is, and because these are what, the, the, all of, all six of these, um, are all, really all seven, are all, um, Covenants. So a covenant is an extension of kinship by oath. It's an exchange of persons. They say, I am yours and you are mine. Now, that's the way, that's why the church sees the sacrament of matrimony as a covenant, not a contract. A contract is an exchange of goods or services made with a promise. They say, let's trade and this is yours, and this is mine. So a covenant is really a, given, a giving of yourself. So when God gives himself to uh, these covenant mediators, he's given him his whole self and asking for the covenant mediators and the people that they mediate for to give of themselves completely and wholly. 
um, in a whole way. Uh, so that's the difference between a covenant and a contract. So again, as the church sees, a, sees matrimony as a covenant, an extension or an exchange of persons. All right. So the covenant chart, how I have for you guys, uh, is kind of, this is how it's going to break down. So if you see that, that first chart I give to you, creation, your mediator is Adam. Your role is husband. So we're going to see Adam as husband. The mountain that, it, that the uh, covenant occurs on is Eden. The organization is a married couple. And then the scripture where the covenant is found is in Genesis 1-2. So throughout this presentation this week and next week, I will continue to come back to this covenant chart to show to you, and we'll kind of we'll continue to fill in it, fill in this covenant chart. Um, there's, a, there's quite a, there's a few things we'll fill in together, and I'll just kind of walk you through that. So that's Adam, husband, Eden, married couple, and then Genesis 1-2. So the covenant with creation, most people are very familiar with this picture. You've probably seen it in a variety of different places. This is Michelangelo's The Creation of Man. Um, when I was in, when I was in um, my undergrad, I took a art, architecture, and music class. And this is one of the pieces that we actually studied. And if you notice, I think this has a red, yep. So you notice that a lot of people will say that this piece back here, kind of behind, at, uh, behind God and all the it, this is a, we don't have the full piece, but if you look at this whole big piece back here, it's some interpret that as, as the human brain, kind of it extends back down here like this, and it kind of represents a brain, uh, and that's God giving uh, Adam life and reason and intellect. So, and you notice, the one thing I always notice in this picture is how strong God's arm is and how his finger is pointing very distinctly and you notice kind of Adam's hand is very limp there uh, right before life is put into it. Now, again, this is obviously art, uh, and it's done by Michelangelo, and this is, in one of, this is one of the paintings in the Sistine Chapel, but it's still something that helps us kind of put in our mind uh, a little bit of what that creation, uh, the creation account was with, with Adam. All right, so the covenant with Adam. So in Hebrew, the term that we see in the scriptures is tohu Wabuhu, which actually means formless and void. So the earth in Genesis 1, when God, you know, we see that the earth is completely formless and completely void. I mean, cre or all of creation, I shouldn't just say the earth, all of creation is formless and void. There's really nothing. God then forms and fills the cosmos into a temple. And God is creating essentially in the six days of creation, God is creating a macro temple for worship because all creation was directed towards worship. Now, creation as a micro temple, you guys, on, on page two there, you should see a little house that's built kind of, uh, and it's got, it's got some things to fill in. So we're going to fill in this together. So on day one, is from the Genesis account, if you, if you read the reading from last week or if you read Genesis 1 in the past, day one we see day and night occur. So that's the, we see this formlessness. 
Oh, so day and night happens on day one. On day two, we see the sea and the sky. So day one, he separates day from night. Now, we'll get to the whole, because it's sun and moon, but we'll see, because day four, we'll get to that. Day two, we see sea and sky, so he separates the sea from the sky. Day three is land and vegetation. So you notice there you've got time, you've got space, and now you have life. On day four, you have the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those are the things that guide all of creation. Then on day five, you have the birds and the fish. And then day six, you have man and then the animals. But he creates the animals and then he creates man last. So you see there's the emptiness on the side of the house and then the formlessness. So he fills in with time, space, and life. And then day one and day four work together. Day two and day five work together. And day three and day six work together. And you've got the realms in the first three days and then you've got the rulers in the, first, in, the, in the other three days, days four, five, and six. And then day seven is actually, actually kind of taking the temple and putting a top on it. And that on day seven, we have the Sabbath. We have the last day of all of creation. Now, a couple things that's... Now, a lot of people get caught up in these actual six days or the seven days of creation. You have to remember that the church is not concerned on how the world was created but why the world was created. And the six days of creation are not literal six days. Uh, they could be millennium. They could be millions of years. They could be realms. You know, it could be... It's the way, when, when Moses writes uh, this account, um, he can't write all of this as in, you know, a billion years, but he takes it and puts it into, into days. But they're, but they're not literally 24-hour calendar days uh, that's the way he just writes he writes it because it's religious history we're so used to kind of an end in a beginning in our history accounts uh, in a linear way uh, this ancient history religious history is written differently and the ancient writers again weren't all that concerned with why the world was created but how it or not how it was created but why it was created so the, the, old, the one question I used to always get from high school students, because I taught high school theology for six years, one question was, where, where are the dinosaurs? Where are the dinosaurs in all of this? Well, probably somewhere in day six, because we know by, from science that man and dinosaurs, human beings and dinosaurs, weren't on, the, weren't on the earth at the same time. So probably somewhere in day six is where the dinosaurs were. And then eventually, lastly, we see that man is created. And in the, in the Genesis account, when you read it, all those days are good. Day one is good. Day two is good. Day three, day four, day five. And then when, he, then when he creates man, then when he actually creates man, he says it's very good. There's a, different, there's a, di there's a difference that's occurring between human beings, the difference between human beings and the rest of creation. That it's the kind of, they're the, they're the glory of all of God's creation. And then again, the Sabbath is the, the temple. So all of creation was made to worship God. 
um, to sacrifice for God, to worship him. All of creation was made for that. And then on the, on the seventh day, he puts the, puts the top on it, and then that's where we have the Sabbath. Okay. So Genesis chapter 2 is actually a close-up of man and woman in Genesis 2. Uh, both creation accounts do correspond to one another. Chapter 2 is essentially the sixth day in Genesis 1. So, so chapter 1 and 2, they correspond. So the whole sixth day now is now being written in chapter 2 of Genesis. And in the garden, we see Adam. Adam in the garden has a variety of roles. First, he has what's called his priestly role. He's to till. God tells him to till it and to keep it. Translated into working and guarding. So Adam is to work in the garden and guard the garden. It's the same language we'll see with the Levitical priests when they worked in the temple and worshipped. So the same language, and we'll talk about them next week when we talk about Moses. The Levitical priests, when they were given the ability, when they were given the duty to guard and work in the temple, once the, once the actual temple was built, that was built by Solomon, the actual structure, the building that was actually built by Solomon, the, the, the Levitical priests were there to protect and guard the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple. The same language that we see in Hebrew, to till it and keep it, to work and guard, is the same language that we see with the Levitical priests. The Levitical priests, though, when they guard the temple, they guard the temple with weapons. Uh, we also see Adam having a kingly role. Here he has, he has dominion over all things. He's the one that calls the shots. So he is now king of the garden. He's created in the image of God. And it's important because he's referenced as the son of God. And always in, the, in, the, in, in, in all of these covenants, we see the son of God is always associated with the, the firstborn. The firstborn is a key figure in all the covenants because the firstborn is the one who inherits all the, um, all the, uh, you know, the, the inheritance of the father. We even see Jesus is referenced as the firstborn. Um, that's why, um, you know, they, they say the firstborn son. Well, it's not meaning that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. It just means that Jesus is the one that inherits and takes on what his father gives him. Uh, and that's exactly what we see in the Old Testament covenants. That's why when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, you guys know, most of you, are familiar, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, it's the younger son that gets half of the father's inheritance. And Jews of the time must have been saying, what are you talking about, half? The older son is the one that gets that. So that's why the firstborn was always a very important role in, in the Jewish uh, in the Jewish relationship and in the in the family, because it's the firstborn that all the covenants and, and or the the, uh, the inheritance falls to. So we see that with we see that with Adam that he's the image of God, but he's the son of God who was the firstborn. We also see Adam as a prophet speaking in the name of God, and then we also see Adam as the bridegroom, because we see creation in woman. So creation and woman, who eventually we know as Eve, is the bride of Adam. And he's the bridegroom. So 
if you want to know, now Scott Hahn will break these down in that book for you specifically, but if you have your Bible with you, open up to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2. And then we see in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Again, to work and to guard. Um, and then we see, him as, uh, we see him as priest because he's there. To, that's where we see him as priest is to, because the priests, the Levitical priests, were there to guard and to keep. Um, we see uh, in Genesis 2.23, him as Adam as the bridegroom. This is where he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, when Adam is uh, speaking and naming the animals, we see him as, as prophet. And then obviously we see him, that role, in, uh, when, he's, when, he's, when God tells him to have dominion, you, have, you now have dominion over all the garden and you're to till it and keep it. Again, we see him as a kingly, a kingly role as well. Okay, so that's where now these are all these are all important um, these are all important roles in the Old Testament. You have kings, you have prophets, and you have priests. Okay, now all three of these roles, and uh, I'm not sure who's teaching you guys baptism, but uh, they'll talk a little bit about this. Probably Father Will um, or one of the priests. Um, but these three Old Testament roles, priest, prophet, and king, are fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And then through our baptisms, we then receive these roles. And we receive these roles as priests. We offer up our daily... So, so as, as Catholics, this is how we live out these roles. We're given to them in baptism... Priest, we offer up our daily sacrifices. Father Will, as a, as a Catholic priest, offers up the body and blood, or the bread and wine, which becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But we, too, have a priestly role, where we offer up our daily sacrifices. Those little things in our life that, that are affecting us. Fam, you know, fam, maybe family members. Are we praying for family members? Um, are we praying for our child who doesn't understand a concept in, in math? Uh, you know, and, and we, they, can't, they can't understand it, and we're trying to help them understand it, and it's, and it's making us hurt that they can't understand it, and we can't teach it to them, because uh, I'm terrible at math, and I haven't, taken a math, I haven't taken a math class since 1993, so my kids are, they're, 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 they have a problem, so I can't say what I really want to say, but um, they have really, they, they have a problem, because I, I, I hate at math, so, but, so I'll be probably praying for my children quite a bit when it comes to math. Um, but those are up those daily sacrifices. Do we have a neighbor that's telling us to cut a tree in our backyard and they're arguing with us, okay? Those are sacrifices. Those are those daily sacrifices that we can offer up to God. As a prophet, we learn our faith and evangelize to others. Um, you know, you guys are here learning more about the Catholic faith. There's a, there's a lot of you that are hoping and praying and thinking about becoming Catholic. There's others, there's others of you in here that are already Catholic and want to just be confirmed and continue your Catholic faith and fulfill those, those, um, those, those sacraments of initiation. But 
after, when this is all over, when it's all said and done in May, you know, when we let, when, you know, there's no more leader, there's no more teachers leading you, where will your faith be? Well, you know, we offer classes here. That's something as Catholics we continue to learn. We continue to learn about our faith. Uh, and it's not something that we just do now and decide, okay, I'm done, I'm Catholic, I'm never going to come back to the faith or, or come back to church or go to Mass. But as prophets, we continue to always learn our faith and then go out and evangelize others. And then as kings, we are there to serve others materially and spiritually. Uh, and that has to do with the works of mercy, which you guys will learn about, uh, but the spiritual works of mercy, uh, which you'll learn later on. If you Google works of mercy or Catholic works of mercy, you'll find, you'll find all the works of mercy. But that's what we do in our kingly role. We're there to serve each other materially and spiritually. Um, you know, I give a perfect example. This year is a perfect example for it. The hurricanes, okay? All the, all the people that, you know, that lost things in Florida and in um, Texas, and, and the bishops are asking us to donate money to help, to, help, you know, to help those people and help their lives. That's our kingly role. That's a perfect example of it. Uh, but also praying for people, leading people to the faith, you know, maybe, maybe praying with someone, that's also that spiritual role as well. Okay, so Genesis 2 continued. Um, Genesis 2, we see in verse 223, we actually see the verse poetry, first poetry in the Bible, uh, where Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And what we see that all of creation is actually liturgical, bridal, and nuptial. How's it, how's it marital? So we have, the, we have marriage is the final thing that happens after woman is created. So that's kind of, we have creation being built. And then finally, after all of creation is created, marriage then becomes the icon. The relationship between a man and a wife is like a relationship with God and humanity. So we see this, uh, uh, this understanding of, of marriage that literally begins right at the beginning of creation. And when Adam says that he, it's really what it is, is bone, when, he, when he first sees uh, Eve, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's poetry. Uh, I turn this into a modern day understanding. This is courtship. When you, when you meet that special, special woman, guys, and you're bringing her flowers, and you're taking long walks in the park, and uh, walks in nature, and maybe going to Flagstaff, and going to see the colors of the trees changing, going to the opera, okay? You know, this is like candy and chocolate, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're reading French poetry to her. All these things. This is this, is this, this courtship. And this is what we see with Adam. Now, of course, he throws her under the bus a few verses later, okay? Uh, but we'll get to that. But this is really where he is just, give, you know, this, he's giving it all and creation's kind of coming to this fulfillment. It's also nuptial and liturgical. Because liturgy, all liturgy has a nuptial orientation to it in the sense that we are the bride of Christ coming to the body and blood of the bridegroom. So there's this nuptial imagery and liturgical imagery that the importance of, of um, our, 
our uh, relationship with God and with the church through liturgy. And then man is out there. So when we, then we see this understanding that man is out there in the in, out there in the field to provide for the home, and he brings everything home to his wife so that she can create the food, which is very much the natural level. So this is where we see man providing and woman, and then and then she creating and and doing something with with what man brings home. Okay, that's a speedy, very speedy. Uh, explanation of Genesis 1 and 2. Read, read the book. It'll fill in all the little holes. Genesis 3 now. So remember, Genesis 2.23, bone by bone and flesh by flesh. Then we see now the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And what we see is the word for serpent, that the, the serpent now is, is Hebrew. The Hebrew word for serpent is nahash or dragon. Uh, I would encourage you to see Revelation chapter 12. What the serpent does is that he starts with doubt. The serpent attacks the bride even today with doubt. The, the certain, uh, Satan himself attacks the church even today. And then we see that from doubt to denial, God is essentially, what the serpent says to Eve essentially is saying that he doubts their their, their trust in God. Because he's, he says to her, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll be like God. But the thing is, they already were like God. They kind of understood what God's plans were. Uh, so he makes them doubt themselves. Uh, and then we fall into this, because he says, God is holding you back. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's not the way he wants you to be. If you eat of the tree... You'll, you'll be just like him. But again, they were just like him. So he, he starts this whole idea of doubt. Um, and then we have what's called the threefold concupiscence. It's known as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is really, concupiscence is a term, you'll learn eventually, but I'll, I'll explain it to you tonight. Concupiscence is actually the uh, inclination to sin. And it's the ability that we, we, we that, that even after we're washed from original sin uh, through baptism, there's the residue that remains, and concupiscence is that residue, and there's that inclination that we still have to sin. And here we see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is how, because they, they see... They see that the apple is good, or not the apple, excuse me, listen to me. They see that the fruit is good, they eat of it, and then there's this pride because the fall of Adam and Eve isn't, sin, isn't lust, it's pride. Because they wanted, they felt that they could do it better because obviously the serpent tricks them. And what's interesting in the account is that he goes to Eve. The serpent doesn't go to Adam. Remember, remember. Adam's job is to guard and till. So he's to keep the garden. He's to protect the garden. That was his primary job, was to protect the garden, which included Eve, who was in the garden with him. When the dragon, which I would imagine, you know, in the scripture account, it says serpent. In most, most accounts, we see this. We see kind of like this, more of this snake. But in the Hebrew... Serpent was actually trans translated into Nahash, which was a dragon. So a dragon appears and tempts them. 
So Adam, even though he doesn't do his job, I imagine most of us would fail at our jobs as well because of this, this, this dragon that then appears and tempts them and speaks to them. Um, so the, the serpent attacks them. And what he does is he doesn't go to Adam. He goes to Eve. He goes around, okay, because that's what Satan is. Satan's a coward in, in, in reality. He won't, he'll, he'll go around He'll go around us and try to trick us, but he doesn't go to Adam. He goes to Eve. And because that's what in the, in the account, she says she took the fruit and ate it and then gave it to her husband, and he also ate it, meaning that she was there as well. So it's not, you know, the account always gets the blame. Eve always gets the blame in this account, but that's not the case. It's Adam's job to protect and to guard her and to stand up to the dragon, but he kind of stands there and doesn't do anything and just allows her to get tempted by the, by the, by the serpent, uh, and then he falls, uh, and then they both fall together. So it's a, it's, a, it's a thing that they, it's not just Eve's fault. And the question that I always get with this is, what, what is the fruit? Because we always see the apple, and all, you see movies and literature, it's always an apple. Um, why is it an apple? Well, the scriptures took root in all of Europe, and for many years in Europe, there were many apple trees, so the fruit was associated with, with the apple. But in reality, it was more than likely a pomegranate because the pomegranates were seen in the ancient world as aphrodisiacs. So they were kind of the, 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 the fruit that would have gotten the sexual, um, lustful feelings going, and which would have led them, which also would have led them into this sin. So um, that's the, there's a study that we're doing here at the parish it actually shows a depiction of this in the, because it's a, it's a study on Mary, which is the scripture that we're getting to here in a second. And they actually show the description, and actually the tree looks like a pomegranate tree, which was kind of cool, because I saw one at a nursery. I was walking around recently with my girlfriend, and we saw a pomegranate tree in a nursery. And I had to take, I was like, oh man, those things grow, those, those grow here, you can grow them here. So I took a picture of it and threw it up on Facebook and called it Biblical Fruit. So, because that's where, that's really the creation account was, was more than likely a pomegranate. Okay. Now, on the first day of the, uh, the disaster, God promises, promises us a savior. And we see it in Genesis 3.15 with the Proto-Evangelium, which is known as the first gospel. This is the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer of a battle between the serpent and the woman and of the final victory of the descendant of hers. This is the, so in Genesis 3.15, it's not talking, the woman is not Eve. The church interprets this as being of, of Mary and that we would see the coming of Jesus Christ to redeem us after the fall then occurs. Then in Genesis 3.16, God curses the serpent, the woman, and the man. Not, not, not Mary, but Eve and then man and Adam. And then in Genesis 3.15, we see the crushing of, again, going back to 15, we see the crushing of the head is fatal, crushing of the heel is non-fatal, and that Christ will crush the demon. And ancient cultures like Egypt saw snakes as being evil. So we have this understanding that in Genesis 3.15, a woman was going to come and then her, her seed, excuse me, her seed were, was going to then crush this, the head of the serpent. 
which is Satan. And in the end, it was Adam's job, as I said, to protect and guard the, to protect and guard the garden, which includes his wife Eve. In the end, he failed to protect her and the garden. And what he did, and, and did what he was, what was he was given by God, uh, and he failed to failed to to do all of that and to uh, protect the um, protect the garden in the end. Okay. That's the first comment. Any questions? That's a lot of information. Okay. I'm going to move on to the covenant chart. So if you go back to your covenant chart again, now we see Noah as the mediator. His role is father. It takes place on Ararat. Now it's an extended family. And the covenant is in Genesis 9. What we see here is probably the most famous depiction of this is after after the ark. Um, and here's the there are the animals getting being released, and here's Noah offering up a burnt sacrifice and offering with his family all around him. Those look like, those look like dinosaurs in the back, but. Um, there weren't, yeah. That's that's just a that's just a painting. So they look they look like dinosaurs. Maybe they're giraffes. I don't know. Um, okay. So so the the covenant with Noah is really an Adamic recreation. So it's really a recreation of the original covenant with Adam. It's an act of recreation. The earth is retaken by God. And it really goes back to formless and void. And what the ark then becomes is a floating garden of Eden. So everything that was in the original garden is now in the ark of the covenant. Or the, excuse me, the ark, the ark of Noah, not the ark of the covenant. The big wooden boat that Adam, or excuse me, Noah builds. I apologize. I was with my girlfriend and her family. I went out and met her family this weekend in South Dakota, and we flew in today. I woke up at like 7 o'clock this morning, so my mind is not all completely with me tonight. So I apologize. I knew I was like, oh, I have to teach for RCIA. Okay, so that's why my head is not really with me. It's somewhere else. Um, the same language used in the first covenant with Adam, where they're, where they're told to be fruitful and multiply, we also see here as well. And then we see God is setting the covenant back up with Noah after the fall. All what's interesting about all these covenants, they all have their own falls. Every covenant, except, except for the last covenant, the new covenant with Christ. Um, he ends up renewing all the covenants 
but all of the covenants, they all have their own fall. And we'll, we'll talk about what we see here. Um, and then Noah, what we see, has three sons. Shem, who's his firstborn, Ham, and Jepheth. Shem is the firstborn. It's a key it's a key element of all of this. He will be the one that will inherit his father's inheritance and the covenant will continue to go through Shem. And then there's a fall. Like Adam, we see sin creeps in, fruit, in this case, wine, nakedness, shame, and then the curse. We see that the, because the sons, they see the father naked. We, they, see Noah, they see Noah naked. You have to read the whole, the whole story. Um, and Han does a great, a great job explaining it. But they see the father, instead of kind of doing the father good by covering him up, they kind of they mock him and, and it kind of, kind of falls apart from there. Now, if you've ever seen the, mo- movie, the, the movie Noah, it's, that's nonsense. Okay, with the rock people and all that, all that stuff. Okay, so most modern, all right. I mean, I like uh, Christian Bale. I mean, we'll talk about him next week with Moses. Okay, I mean, I love Batman. Okay, but that one too, Moses, that whole thing with the, that thing with the flood and him, him and Ramses ramming into each other at the end, it was just ridiculous on so many levels. So these movies that they try to make now in Hollywood, they they take. One, they take one chapter of Genesis 9 and take it into a two and a half hour movie and they make up stuff and you know the rock people help them build the ark and all this other craziness. So it is interesting to note though that Mount Ararat, which is in modern day Turkey, this was years ago I heard this. So it's in modern day Turkey. It's actually on an Air Force base. So take our biggest Air Force base in the U.S., and imagine having a mountain in it. So Ararat, there have been studies done of that mountain, like somehow X-ray studies of the mountain. I don't know what that looks like. But somehow in that mountain of Ararat, there's some kind of huge wooden structure that's in that mountain. Now, archaeologists can't get in there because it's on their Air Force base. And think of us trying to let, you know, archaeologists from different countries on our Air Force base, it wouldn't happen. But there have been pictures taken of Mount Ararat in modern-day Turkey, and there's some kind of structure, large wooden structure that's in that mountain. Um, you could probably Google it. Um, that's something I was told uh, many years ago. Okay, so that's Noah. Noah is essentially a redo. It's a start over. That's what it is um, from, the, from, the, from the original covenant. It's just redoing from the fall. Because what you'll see it when, you read, if, when you read in Genesis and then read Han's book, what happened was between Adam and Noah, the world just got more corrupt. Men and women just became more evil. And God got sick of it and flooded it. Um, and then he wanted to start the world over again. But he promises in Genesis that he would never, never do that again. That's, that's essentially the covenant with Noah. Okay, the covenant with Abraham, let's go back to the covenant chart again in the beginning. So you notice that they're all starting to build on one another. So now you've got 
Abraham, which he eventually will become Abraham. He first starts off as Abram. But Abraham is the mediator. He's now a chief. The covenant takes place on Mount Moriah, which is actually Mount Mor- the Moriah Mountains are all outside of Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. There's different Calvary where Jesus is crucified is actually part of the Moriah range. The, um, so it's Mount Moriah. They become now a tribe, so they're growing. They go from a married couple to an extended family. Um, obviously, you have, you have um, Cain and Abel and... and uh, and then you go from the extended family, and then you're now a tribe. And now, and then we see the, the, the scriptures are Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. We're going we're gonna kind of, to break all of those down. So that's, so a little bit, so here's Abraham's, a, depiction of Abraham and his family. Now, a little background on Abraham. Abraham was asked by God to leave the city of Ur. Ur is believed to be in the modern modern day Iraq. He was the BMOC in Ur. You know what that is? The big man on campus. Okay? Everybody knew Abram. Okay, yo, Abram, what's happening, baby? Look at those camels. Okay, nice camels, Abraham. Okay, everybody knew him. But God asks him at the age of 75 to leave the city of his birth, the city that where everyone knew him, his home, to leave. And what does Abram do? He obeys and he leaves. At this point in his life, he's very wealthy. He's old, though, and also childless. And he begins this life of wandering, this nomadic life of wandering. He endures many trials. He endures famine, exile, a temporary loss of his wife, family strife, wars, unfulfilled promises, and marital discord. However, through it all, Abram's faith remains strong. He remains steadfast through the whole thing. There are one, there's one, there's two figures in all of Scripture where we look to for great examples of faith. In the Old Testament, it's Abram or Abraham. And the second, the second is Mary, the Blessed Mother in the New Testament. Her undying, her unwillingness to say yes to, to God through the angel Gabriel. Now the DNA, the DNA of salvation history is present in Genesis one, uh, Genesis twelve verses one through three, and we see the three promised blessings of to Abram. We see that he'll there'll be a great nation that will descend from him. There'll be a great name, which is a, a royal name. And then lastly, the universal blessing. 
So in Genesis 12, all three of these things, God says a great nation, great name, and universal blessing all will come from you. So let's look at nationhood first. The covenant between the pieces is where we pick up great nationhood in Genesis 15. An ancient covenant covenant ritual, walking through the pieces of the animals that were cut in two, it's a ritual covenant that God essentially says to Abram, may I die like these animals if I don't keep these three promises to you. And God passes with the torch and the fire pot and passes through the cut pieces. So what what God is doing, he's giving a curse of death upon himself if he does not fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. The curse of death is the death of Christ that God brings upon himself with Abraham. The curse bearer also fulfills this covenant. So that curse, so, so what Abram does and if you read from last, if you read last week, and again, you'll see it in a father who keeps his promises, he cuts the pieces, cuts them in half, and then God, as the, with the torch, represent, the torch, the torch representing God, walks kind of through and passes through these cut pieces that says, these animals, if I don't fulfill these promises, may death then come upon me. This, however, this Uh, part of the universal blessing is fulfilled with the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant with Moses, which we'll talk about next week. And then, like I said before, we see a fall also in Genesis 16. And what, what that fall is, is a lack of faith. God asks Abram to be patient since no child is coming. Sarah tells Abraham to take her maidservant, Hagar. Sarah and Abraham both blame one another in regards to Hagar. Just like Adam and Eve, there's the passing of the buck, and there's a big lack of faith. So God promises Abraham, you will have a son. But what happens is no son is coming. So Hagar, which was her maidservant, says, Sarah says, take my maidservant, have a child with her, and then the son will come. Um, This is actually where we see Ishmael. The son of Hagar and uh, Abraham is Ishmael. And this is where the uh, Muslim people, or the really the Arab people, the Arab people claim that they also come from Abraham, and it was through Ishmael. So, and then we see Isaac that's born later to uh, Abraham and Sarah. That's the, Jew- the Jewish people descend from Isaac and the Arab people descend from Ishmael. So there's the, there's, the, there's the idea that the three great religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all come from the seed of Abraham. But again, there's this fall because that wasn't, there's a, why is it a fall? Well, because God, this wasn't part of God's plan. They took it upon themselves because they, well, he wanted to believe God, but then there was again, she said, take, take Hagar, 
and then you've got this kind of this 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 fighting going on between them, and then eventually, but Hagar, even though he was born or uh, Ishmael was born before Isaac, the covenant then goes through Isaac because that was the original the original plan. Uh, and again, there are when you read it in scripture, it's interesting because they're all they're doing is arguing back and forth, very very similar to what we see in Genesis, where uh, because in in Genesis. You know, when God says to Adam, what have you done? And, you know, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Then, you know, then in Genesis 3, he's like, that woman that you put here with me, she gave me the fruit, so I ate it. So he throws her on, that's what I said before, he throws her under the bus. Well, Abraham does the same thing with Sarah. He blames Sarah. Well, you, 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 you told me to take, you told me to do this. You know, I really want to do this. And so there's, there's the fall uh, of, of this covenant. The second one is the great name, and it's also, this is where we see the covenant of circumcision. Deviating from the plan that occurred in Genesis 16, we now see circumcision as being part of, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's the punishment of the, of the lack, of, lack of faith that they had in Genesis 16. But in, in Genesis 17, we see that promises that God says that they promises a kingship would come. A dynasty would then descend from Abraham's seed. Here we see a name change. He goes from Abram to Abraham. I've been using Abram, Abraham back and forth. But at this point, he's Abram, and then he goes to Abraham. And it says that kings would then come from Abraham. And his name is now great and would be great. So even though they, they deviated from the plan, God still promised that kings, royalty, would descend from Abraham. Name changes are very important because a name in the, in the scriptures wasn't just, didn't just identify you as a person. Like, my, you know, my name is, if I pull up my driver's license, there's my name, and it kind of identifies me as, you know, Thomas Joseph Perna. But in the scriptures, a name actually focuses on your mission. So Abram now becomes Abraham, who would be a father of multitudes, is what Abraham stands for. Think of the New Testament. Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. We see multiple times, or even um, Isaac, uh, 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 no. No, 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 wait. I'll get to that. Wait, no. I'm trying to think of who it was. There's one more I can't think of who it was. Um, I can't think. Um, I'll, I'll come back. Sorry. Again, see, this is, this is a, this is a four-day four day vacation in South Dakota. It's doing this to me. So, um, but you get these name changes that occur, in the, this, that occur in the scriptures. And what happens is that becomes their mission. So, like, Peter... It becomes the rock of the church. He goes from Simon to Peter. So that's why we see these, these name changes occurring in the, in the scriptures. And then where this is going to be fulfilled is the Davidic covenant. That's the covenant with David that we'll talk about later next week. And then lastly, we see the universal blessing, which is Genesis 22. Genesis 22 were found on Mount Moriah. 
And this is looking towards the death of Christ on the cross. The unconditional promise that God has bound himself, by myself I have sworn, that he will fulfill in Abraham's descendants. In Genesis 22, we see verse 6 that Isaac is much older. Isaac was older, carrying the heavier load of wood. Both of them together, they walked, as it says in the scriptures, they walked along together. And what walking does is it slows down the narrative or slows down the story. Now, back to Genesis 17, we see this under this walk where it says, walk before me and be blameless. This is the testing of Abraham and his fidelity from Genesis 17. And then verse 9 Isaac becomes the willing, the willful sacrifice, a death he freely accepts. Obedience to God from both Abraham and Isaac. So this is their walking, and, and Moriah and Isaac's carrying the wood up one of the peaks of Mount Moriah, who also carries up wood. One of the peaks of Mount Moriah is Jesus Christ, which is Calvary. So you see this typology between Isaac and, G- and Jesus in the New Testament. A willful sacrifice, willing to die. Isaac is older. Um, you know, he's probably a teenage, a teenage boy by now, probably a late teenage boy. And Abraham's a much older man by now. If he wanted, a wolf, if he wanted to fight his father and get away from him, he would have easily been able to do so. But he willfully says... Abraham says God will provide the, the, uh, the uh, sacrifice, and Isaac is actually willfully uh, allows his father to, to do so. And then right before Abraham is about to bring the sword down upon his, his son, the, the angel of God stops him. Mount Moriah, again, is a place where the temple of Solomon would be built. The animal sacrifices in the temple would be repetitions of the sacrifices that would be done on this site. And all of this points to the Eucharistic theology in the bloodless sacrifice that then occurs in the Mass. So when Solomon eventually builds the temple, he builds it on this site. He essentially builds it on the site of, and if you look back through Scripture, Scripture scholars believe when the temple was actually built, and there's, I don't have a thing, I don't have, I'll do it for you next week. But when the temple was actually built, the area where they actually sacrificed the lambs in during the Passover was literally the same spot that this occurred, that you, we, have the, we have this sacrifice of Isaac uh, and um, the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. And then again, we see this as the foreshadowing of the Eucharistic covenant of Jesus dying on the cross um, on the same, essentially in the same region and same area that um, Abraham and Isaac then uh, perform, well, the near, the near sacrifice. And then this is fulfilled, this universal blessing is also then fulfilled with Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So, this, so these three promised blessings are then get fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant, in the Davidic Covenant, and then in the New Covenant with Jesus. Now, Christ, as we'll see, becomes a new Adam. He becomes a new Noah. 
He's Abraham. The, 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 uh, the New Testament writers refer to him as a new Moses, as the new David. He's the fulfillment of David. He's also a fulfillment of the prophets because we see a lot of the prophets speaking about Christ coming as well. So Jesus then, when we get to the new covenant next week, um, and again, this is kind of an, a very quick over, you know, run through of these covenants. When we see our Lord, what he does is he then fulfills all of these, all of these covenants. And I don't, a couple of weeks ago, you guys learned about, uh, Laura talked about typology. Okay, like persons, places, and, and events in the Old Testament uh, that are prefigured in the Old Testament that are then fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the New. Okay, so all of these, all these, these different events and persons and places, they're all fulfilled by Jesus then in the New Testament.